What is the Podcaster Matrix? The Podcaster Matrix is your source for podcast media hosting. Get your entire podcast library hosted now at podcastermatrix.com. Shield. It's an organization that both exists and doesn't exist all at the same time. For those in the know, SHIELD, the Strategic Homeland Intervention, Enforcement and Logistics Division, is the counterterrorism and intelligence agency run by Director Nick Fury. Its global reach, with thousands of operatives with differing skill sets across the globe, continues to grow. SHIELD's activities have been documented for a long time, both in comic books and feature films. Those legendary tales now transfer to the smaller screen in a weekly series on ABC via Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., a chronicle of the findings of a crack team of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. This is the detailed review of those chronicles. Set your life model decoy to take care of life's business for now. It's time for another episode of the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast from Two Guys Talking. 1955 was a landmark year in science fiction, but what kind of platform will it provide for our valiant future hopping heroes inside this final season of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on ABC and Hulu streaming. What's this? Agent Carter? Flying saucers? Bombs more powerful than anything you can possibly imagine? And those equal alien commies from the future? It's all here and more inside this episode of the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast. A complete, detailed, and always educational review of each and every episode of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on ABC and Hulu streaming. This time, Season 7, Episode 3, Alien Commies from the Future. Greetings, everybody. I'm Mike Wilkerson, one of your hosts. And I'm Nicholas J. Hearn, your other host. Nick, of course, joining us again from one of the outstanding pieces of technology, also from the time-hopping 1955 crew inside of the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. series. Yes. <laughs> Nick, we're going to forego housekeeping because it's time to jump right into this episode. Sponsored by Acoustica's Mixed Craft Recording Software, Blogger's Bug, and the St. Charles Office Center. Probably not a good idea that the first thing that you hear is a note about a Perry Como tune. Nick, are you a Perry Como fan? No. Okay. Well, the bottom line is that the first thing you never want to hear when time traveling, although I guess it means you're in 1955, is that the radio is playing a tune, a new one, by Perry Como. Did, did this mean well, anything to you at all, Nick? No, I think this was just a fun little way for them to ease into the the time traveling aspect of jumping ahead 20 years mm. yeah i again i love the time hopping thing and that we're going to be able to have something like this that i hope just escalates and takes us to some very interesting and significant times inside of history i think that that's a master stroke i liked it when we first discussed it inside of the very first episode of the season and that it continues here inside of the third episode i think is really a great great mark 1955 how many back to the future jokes will we get for this episode 
How many did you think we'd get this time, Nick? Well, I never count on them trying to do a joke or shove in a joke. So when one does occur, it's always it's always welcomed. Mm-hmm. But uh, I didn't pick up on any. And spoiler alert, I didn't either. And so the answer to our question is zero, which I think is very interesting. I'm I'm, I'm glad we didn't have kind of a ha ha pointing at the fourth wall extravaganza inside this episode because pinpointing it to 1955 would have been very very easy to do so yeah but i also i also feel like we we we've made enough time travel jokes in that first episode and if we're now expecting jokes to show up every episode then we're not really paying attention to what the overall story is supposed to be i feel that that's why they made the joke, the Terminator 2 joke, in the first episode of this season, mm-hmm. just to get all time travely jokes out of the way. Mm. I think that's well said, and uh, frankly, it's welcome. I think if we had to bounce between jokes and nods to movies instead of the time travel cone, I think we'd be pretty tired by the time we're done with this season. Agreed. A new title card and a mark of a trend. This is fantastic. The only thing better than the card is the actual sound that's used inside of this. It's that kind of... I love that. I thought that that was great inside of this. Uh, And that's probably as far as I want to get to satirizing the time periods that they jump to. Yes. Because doing it for the title card works because that is outside of the story narrative. That's just for the audience. Right. Whereas if you're tossing in jokes, pop culture references left and right, then you're getting bogged down. Well, well you're doing exactly what happened in Endgame. Correct. Where they spend a good chunk of that movie just tossing out references to movies that, that dealt with time travel. Yeah. Now, I agree with that. What I think I like most about this, and you've already alluded to it, but it, it needs to be said, is the brevity there, there is so much value inside of not taking a joke and then putting it through a juicer so as to squeeze every little stinking seed and juice molecule out of something that you are trying to get some a, a piece of entertainment from. And I'm so happy that they're not doing that with this at all. Uh, that Using the title card and then, again, alluding to that sound here inside of 1955, I thought was extraordinary, and it really does help push the story forward quickly. A white room, two hunters, and a predictor. This was also excellent. Also, just, you know, another infinity room set that's been remodeled. The contrast has been jacked up so as to look like something that it's not. And it instantly serves a purpose inside of this episode that I thought was tremendous. It instantly gives us a, a total question mark view of something that we've not really seen previously, but then also introduces something called the predictor inside of this episode. I loved it. Well, it, it helps to redefine the boundaries of the chronicoms because there are different, uh, I guess, stations. You know, they, they have jobs, but not all the same. All have different rankings, I guess you, you could call it. And we learned specifically that there's only one predictor left in the future, and she's the one calling the shots. 
and it's done appropriately. So what I really enjoyed about this very brief scene is that there's no question that there is a hierarchy of command and it is very well established inside of this scene. I thought it was great. Jumping forward and back, energy and realizing that they're in the wake of the Chronicoms. This was excellent because we've already realized this as an audience, but being able to see the Chronicoms light bulb moment as to what's going on, I, I loved all of that. I love being able to watch them pivot to try and do something different so as that the mission will succeed in their view as opposed to just, I guess this is what we're going to have. They're able to pivot, and I really enjoyed being able to see that all happen and unfold. The baton passing of dialogue. Is it a bit off-putting? The front end of this episode is not only a signpost to the fact that this was directed by somebody completely different, but that the episode was also probably written by somebody else, if not a series of somebody else's than the previous episodes. Originally, I felt it was kind of off-putting because we're hurrying through the front end of this episode with a lot of dialogue, but the servings of the dialogue are very short across a variety of characters. I wasn't quite sure how to feel about that. As the, as the episode progressed, I, I, I liked it in retrospect, but as it was initially being delivered, I was not sure I was on, on the same page as the people that wrote the episode. The dialogue didn't bother me uh, simply because this episode is nothing but dialogue. There is only action in this episode the last maybe 10 minutes. Maybe 10 minutes of this episode. Mm -hmm. This is all people talking about this, that, or the other thing. Yeah. And the only way that you can sustain a show for 40 plus minutes with people just talking is if the conversation is compelling and important to not only overall story, but the characters in the story. And for me, I felt all the dialogue fit the characters that were, were talking at the time. That's actually where we ask you guys, what did you think about this baton passing of dialogue in the front end of the episode? Let us know what you think by going over to our website. That's agentsofshieldpodcast.tv. Fill out the quick web form and tell us what you thought of the front end dialogue inside this episode. A diner, an admission, and a relationship spurned. Oh, this was great. If you weren't already ready for the delivery of what happens here inside the diner, the actual physical location of the diner, man, this was just delicious to look at, Nick. Yes. I, again, reaching back into that colloquial almost time machine of a diner for the for those of you that have one inside of your city you can instantly remember the last time you went to one because it is it's you instantly walk through the portal slash door of where wherever however you enter these tiny little diners there's one down on on 14th and olive inside of st louis called the white knight and it's so small, Nick. I think it's it's not much larger than our actual physical studio that we record at in Lake St. Louis. It's a very, very small joint where you can sit down and you can be very uncomfortable as you sit and watch your, your food be cooked. <laughs> um, but it is an instant time machine back to a completely different time. And the same thing happened with this one where you walk in and anywhere the camera looks, you instantly have something completely different that is a time machine. I, I thought it was spectacular. 
L.M. Coulson, Loving Being on the Skirt of the Space Age. As we finish up the front end of this scene inside the diner, it's important to revel that during the time travel we're seeing here, for those that have forgotten, 1955 is on the front end cusp of what was going on with space travel. So we're not into the, the Apollo heyday. We're not into somewhere where we've got a space shuttle to vaunt into space. This is where it all started in a, a completely different sense of patriotism and, and machine building and future very soon wonder was taking place. And it's a time that I've always wanted to go back and visit myself somehow. And if not with a DeLorean, then I guess I'll have to do with the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. that's provided with us inside this episode. But it was I thought it was great, Nick. Expedient Mickey and vaulting forward. This was tremendous. I love when we can we can get dialogue that's delivered that instantly showcases what we need and then moves along. And in this scene, we actually get both of them in a, in a matter of a minute that really does help propel this episode, especially out of that front end that was just kind of a tossing around the horn of information to get you all peppered through and ready. And then this scene instantly kicks you in the ass through the rest of the what comes inside of the rest of the episode. Ten minutes in, and we're sprinting. <laughs> Nick and I continue to marvel at this show because, again, if it's not the very rich storytelling, if it's not the building of character arcs and thick, rich storytelling with those characters, it is the pace of this program that instantly bolsters the fun barrier inside this episode and this series collectively. And I think we get a giant, huge, masterful sandwich delivered at the 10-minute mark where we're 10 minutes in, but the episode is already just sprinting along as fast as even the Zephlorian can travel. Well, we said it before, and I'm sure we'll continue to say it. Pacing is probably one of the most important aspects of any kind of storytelling, whether it be visual or, or other. Simmons pulls off the all-time time rope-a-dope. Ha! Oh, man. Not only was I... Uh, I I'm, I'm smiling from ear to ear if you can't hear inside of the microphone right now. But when this came up, and it wasn't just because, oh my God, are we somehow accidentally going to glance on the Agent Carter? We we are we are dipped like like a caramel apple <laughs> in Agent Cartery in inside of this episode, and this is the first part where the English speaking Agent Simmons pulls off the all time time rope a dope by portraying ding 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 one Agent Carter, and I loved every every minute. I could not drink thickly enough of this. I, I agree. It, it was nice. It, it was nice to have a nod to the character. Uh, I personally feel that uh, some way, somehow, they should have been able to get Haley Atwell. And we should have had, I, I, I would have loved a 30-second cameo at some point in time during this episode. Instead of just a name drop and a, I'm going to pretend to be this character. Again, that's just a nitpick because I'm still a little sore from the lackluster way season two of Agent Carter was handled. Yeah. 
I, I think what I equate this to is if you can remember the happy face, in fact, you kind of see it inside of this episode from L.M. Coulson, but if you can remember the happy face that Coulson had when he actually met Captain Frickin' America, <laughs> that, that whole almost a, almost a Deadpool pull in regard to emotion, uh, emotion ability inside of that scene. That's what's pulled off here, except she does it completely silent just by smiling and, and showcasing through as she, she shows the ID inside of the scene. Uh, again, it is the all-time, all-time time rope-a-dope. And I, I, again, I, it's just a, a piece of Marvel haha that I will always treasure. Meeting the original S.H.I.E.L.D. Q and his antiquated items. This was spectacular, too, and again, it's because of the brevity that was given this. I don't mind meeting the original Q, the guy with gadgets from S.H.I.E.L.D. Cool. I don't even mind running through, I don't know, three, four, five different items. I don't even mind any of that. But that we're ringside, and we know that, hey, this guy actually thinks that that's Agent Carter and Agent Carter's secretary. Man, I again, it was ear to ear as they were running through so much so that I don't actually remember what they looked at beyond the watch. And what was actually being said in the scene because I was smiling so big. Well, they showed off the wrist communicator. They showed off the giant EMP that didn't work. And then the model of the the MacGuffin of the episode. <laughs> yeah, which was Project, tremendous. In a, Project in, MacGuffin. Yeah. That, that, I thought that that was tremendous, too. And also a complete throwback, including the size of the item, back to the, the visual that we saw with the predictor. I really enjoyed that. I thought that that was a great handhold and that, oh, hey, by the way, the the real one is much, much larger than this one. I, I thought that was all done really well. The test this afternoon. How much spycraft is human effort and social engineering? Something that I think everybody has either put time and or effort into, you know, spycraft movies, the James Bond-esque stuff where you instantly think, okay, well, what does Bond have to work with this time? Oh, exploding ski poles. Or, oh, hey, it's a, a submarine car. Or, oh, hey, it's an ejector seat. Or whatever the gadget goo-gaw <laughs> is going to be used inside of a, a, a Bond film or inside of a spycraft film. And something that I think a lot of people forget about is that spycraft, especially back during this era was way more about the human effort and the social engineering that people needed to pull off while in character as whomever they were trying to trying to either spoof or portray or try and use as a, a wedge to get into where they weren't supposed to be. And what's marvelous now is that because of technology, we're now able to look at how social engineering is actually now on the front end cusp of just about every single scammer event that there is on planet earth currently where people will say things because time and the way people interact have dictated and showcased that if i say this then you're going to say and or do that that's social engineering and you can clearly see it on display inside of this episode as well as it being upended because of a very special guest is that so mamacita this is tremendous, and we'll, we'll talk about this character that 
is a wonderful character actor that's been in a bunch of Boston-based movies, probably because he is from there. And his role that's used inside of this, where he's the main DOD guy that L.M. Coulson is now representing in, inside of the, the farce that is the Agent Carter experiment inside this episode, is tremendous. To watch him do his 1950s, I am the guy that invented interrogation, or at least claiming to be that guy. I loved every single minute of him being on camera, in particular when he is in camera trying to prove that he is a, a modern-day 1955-based badass. I thought it was tremendous. Well, this character, General Sharp, is also our, I guess, guide into the social pulse of what modern America was in 1955. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're hip deep in the Cold War. America has the swagger. You know, we were the ones who ended World War II. Mm-hmm. You know, so everybody should love us, should all do what we say. We know what's best. And everybody else is just dirty commies, no matter what color or creed you are. Yeah. Uh, this guy plays asshole extremely well. <laughs> And I'm wondering, after the events of the actual episode, what will become of General Sharp in the past-slash-future? Yeah, and it's funny that you bring that up. In fact, this is probably a good place as any to talk about it. (laughs) Again, to go back from our previous episodes, uh, we need ripples, not waves. And I have to tell you taking a man that was at the top of the food chain inside of 1955's counterculture spy espionage totem pole and throwing him completely under the bus. Not quite the ripple. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Uh, I'm super curious to see where it goes to. And again, kudos to that actor. The last thing I saw him in that was tremendous, although it be it short lived was the revisit back to the Spencer series of the 1980s with Marky Mark as Spencer inside of Spencer Confidential over on, um, I think I saw it on Netflix. I forgot where it premiered. But uh, he he is tremendous inside of that as the baddie inside of that, that series as well. Great work. Fingering the Chronicom. Boy, this was tremendous. From stem to stern, running through the people, having the not-quite-chuckling moments with Simmons and then L.M. Coulson and then L.M. Coulson solo on the bus to try and hunt out the mole, quote-unquote, the, the, the one that needs to be found, because if you find the one that needs to be found, then we'll be able to save what's going on inside the episode. And oddly enough, not so oddly enough, they don't and aren't able to do it regardless of what their efforts are. And I thought it was tremendous. I thought that I, that whole gameplay, trying to finger the Chronicom inside of this episode, I, I loved every minute of that. It was a good plan, and it would have eventually worked. My only issue with it is they're talking about the plan before it all, before it all starts, before they implement the plan. They've got some of the scientists sitting there, and they're talking about the plan. Those scientists are sitting less than maybe seven feet away yeah five maybe yeah you're right yeah okay so 
So even if they're whispering, if a Chronicom was sitting there, was among them, they would have heard the plan. Yeah. I get the setup and I get the gag because it is a gag. The whole plan is, well, we have to elicit an emotional reaction out of people. Okay, well, that could be fun. And then it does turn into a fun bit. And luckily enough, they, they end the bit before it gets tedious. Yeah, I agree. And I think they, they accomplish that, too, by switching to a variety of locations instead of it just being four guys sitting in a chair. They're in that same roomage in the front end, but they're, they're, it all looks different. It's not just, and here's another one, and here's another one, and here's another one. There's a little bit of that, but then it scoots to a different location, and then it completely changes to the bus location. And, I, again, I love that whole swirl of all of that happening and, and really just the, the dance that they're able to pull off with the acting that's done, the ha-ha grinning at himself that L.M. Coulson does inside of this, and then the, the ticking time bomb of, dude, we've got to find the Chronicom. Where, where the hell is the Chronicom? I thought that that was all pulled off wonderfully. Production design is on point. Oh. <laughs> when we got to 1955, in addition to Back to the Future being one of the front-end memories I had, the other front-end memory I had of 1955 was, of course, that movie from one of my favorite all-time movie characters that shan't be named that included the words Indiana Jones. The fourth one. Obviously, inside that movie, one of the things that that movie did excel at was the production design. Regardless of the lame story and the rest that we won't get into, the production design was on point there. But this episode was easily at that level or higher, frankly, I think, just because they didn't need to have the budget that was included inside of the, the uh, fourth Indiana Jones feature film. This was tremendous production design in every single fashion. The costuming, the setup, the desks, the rooms, the external plays with jeeps and soldiers, the weapons that the soldiers had, the the actual mega guga used inside of this episode. I I I don't have the words to congratulate the produ- the production design team inside of this episode. It was just tremendous. Well, it was really the only way to sell the illusion of time travel. Uh, We talked about it in the first episode of this season. Uh, Doing a period piece, the only way that you pull off a period piece is by making it look like it's the period. And you don't do that if you half-ass it. And for me, I don't feel like the production crew and the production design crew have ever half-assed anything for this show over the last Four seasons at least, four or five seasons. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I, I love that this is a show I can instantly point to and go, if you're looking for effective production design that not only fosters the storytelling, but is something you can point at and say, God damn, look at that. This is the show. Peggy Carter's cohort slash former partner arrives. It was fantastic seeing Sousa, another giant nostalgia bomb for those of us that are devotees of the original agent carter series season one and two and it was tremendous to see him here a little bit more aged which is appropriate because guess what it's been my god has it been four years already nick isn't that how stupid is that uh that that they were able to bring him back 
uh, that he is now on the front end of leading the shield team slash effort. And the, the tenor that they were able to give him here was nothing funny. There, there was nothing funny. That's what I appreciated about all of it is that it would have been very easy to have where she goes, why, yes, I'm agent Carter. And then you have like the little tiny silent, not quite silent whistle in the, in the background soundtrack. And then where he would raise an eyebrow. You don't have any of that. It's played face forward, front facing, no, no bullshit right into it. And then he literally draws a gun and we cut to break. I loved all that. The, the humor is, I mean, the humor is written, but the humor comes from the charisma and the chemistry between from the actors and between the actors. Yes. So when you have a scene like this, you know something's about to happen. It's like, oh, oh, crap. Sousa thinks he's going to see Peggy again, who he probably hasn't seen in at least five or six years, yeah. depending on when she eventually left L.A., and I'm sure he's still sweet on her. And then come to find out, oh, well, this isn't Peggy Carter at all. <laughs> and we know that he knows. But we also know that she doesn't know what this is just yet. So the, the humor for us is, uh, yep, this is, this is going to be one of those funny moments. But it's not played as a funny moment. Correct. Because if you do that, then you just throw in the illusion of the show. Right. Right. And again, it's, it's just so well done. Writing in Sousa, I thought, was a masterstroke. Uh, it obviously is not Haley Atwell, who, unless you've been living under a rock during our entire podcast, you know that I am sweet on not only Peggy Carter, but also onto, onto her as well. And and so it's just, it, again, having all of this back to have a, a waft and literal taste of what's going on back in 1955 watching these characters progress and, and watching another storyline that involves them is, is just such a wonder master stroke. Again, my kudos to the writing staff that chose to jump back into this timeline with these characters. The Sousa Carter moment makes me smile. Well, we've already talked about it, but I wanted to make sure that we had a, a solid point so as to completely spoil that this could have been my possible shield dossier moment inside this episode <laughs> uh but again i i just i think of it and i smile because i i think i'm laughing because nick's got it absolutely right susa is still to this day enamored with one peggy carter as is mike wilkerson <laughs> and i just i i love that we were able to see it, it again it makes me smile it makes me smile right now and it, it's been three days since i saw this episode just wonderfully crafted Finding the Chronicom on the bus. Again, we've already talked about this a little bit, but I wanted to make sure that we mentioned not only the production design of what's going on here, but the diversity of the characters where not only do you have, you know, okay, running through, got the the jargon, the the fun part from L.M. Coulson processing through. Well, that's cool. Oh, hey, here, look. It's just like the lady that gets cold cocked inside of the Captain Marvel trailer that everybody marvels at when that movie comes out surely that's the one that is the chronicom well it's not the one that's a chronicom and that whole process is played wonderfully throughout this entire series it's not i want to almost said gag reel 
And it's not quite a gag reel. It's just that it is a, a, a humorously twisting storytelling area of this episode. And I thought it was really well done. Sousa meets Daisy. You know, the CIA operative. This was another masterstroke of the people I thought they'd put in there to be a, a CIA operative. Man, Daisy strikes gold here inside of this section, accidentally glancing into information. This is actually where I, I thought even more that Spycraft, especially back in the day, really was about listening and speaking and utilizing what people say to be able to garner information, but into much deeper roots of information, not just on the periphery getting little tiny factoids, but listening to how people talk, listening to their emotions, listening to how they're taking pieces of what they're saying and being able to populate those things together. That's the piece of spycraft that is and will always be social engineering. And I think Daisy pays it off wonderfully inside this episode as a CIA operative. And not only that, but then also furthers her own agendas by telling Sousa he's not crazy (laughs) where his theories of infiltration are concerned. So even though Daisy still knows that she shouldn't be trying to stop Hydra from infiltrating S.H.I.E.L.D., she's still trying to stop Hydra from infiltrating S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, and and her uh, the, using, a, for those that aren't familiar with the word bellows, uh, bellows is the thing that you use to, to stoke a fireplace or a, a fire, a, a foundry flame. And she absolutely nails that inside of this, stoking the, the paranoia and the, oh my God, the commies are here from Sousa. It, it's wonderful. A willing-to-die Chronicom plus an ion fusion reactor equals the end. This is tremendous. I love it when they take us to places I know I would have never thought. And this is it. I would, I would, starting this episode, even knowing if we're in, we're in 1955, if they'd have said something to the effect of, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take what is a, a giant bomb, the power of which you can't possibly imagine, and we're going to tie that to a Chronicom willing to kill themselves. And that's going to be the crux of this episode. I would have never gotten it. And I love that. I love that that is what's dangled in front of us as the, are they going to be able to win and push forward? And I, I didn't even have to worry that, well, of course you're going to push forward because dummies, there's nine other episodes that you have to show us. <laughs> I didn't have any of that. I was in the moment and the story was just fun. Yeah, and and like you said, it was fun. It works. Uh, Personally speaking, though, uh, as, again, I'll make mention, if we're bringing Sousa back and we're in the time of Agent Peggy Carter, I would have tried, knowing that this was the last season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., knowing that this is our last opportunity to wrap up any loose ends that we may have dropped during this show and its sister series, Agent Carter, I would have had it have more connection to maybe something from Agent Carter, like, let's say, the Dark Matter from season two. Mm. Mm. Wouldn't it have been interesting if at Area 51 they were doing experiments on the Dark Matter and bada-boom, bada-bing, if we, if we destroy the dark matter by sacrificing a chronicom with all, all kinds of energy, 
you'll wipe out the entire area, shield's done. No more. Now you don't have to worry about shield in the future. Mm. It's the same result, only you're, you're given a tether, an even juicier tether to the past of what the audience would have experienced. Yeah, I dig that. The, the dark matter is, again, for those that haven't somehow seen the Agent Carter two-season story sets, you need to not only go watch them, but then you need to listen to our podcasts about them because I thought that I, I love that series. And again, it's not just my infatuation with Haley Atwell. It's that it's wonderful storytelling and that the arc was cut short because they couldn't find interest in the show slash insert reasons really was terrible. You're absolutely right, Nick. Having that deeper tether tie, uh, I, I would have loved that for sure. Speaking of a willing Chronicom, man, this was great. The person that is playing the Chronicom, well, for one, it's a woman, which is awesome, or at least showcasing as a woman. I don't guess that it matters because you just rip a face off and who cares? Uh, I I loved everything about it. The introduction of the folding fingernail that leads to tethers that instantly interface with machinery that you don't have to explain. It's just there it is and nobody cares because it's happening in the Chronicoms. Yep, check, no problem. I I love the almost Terminator 2 T-1000-esque nature of the Chronicom that realizes that the mission is to blah and nothing will stop her slash it. I loved all of that. I love the the not red-shirted, white-helmet-wearing people that get gunned down instantly, even though she takes some shots. I loved all of that. I loved the production design of the mega Gugaw inside of this. I thought that all of it was just so tremendous. And it all comes on the edge of watching this willing-to-kill-themselves Chronicom. And something else I wanted to talk about, too, is one of the things that was one of... United States many failures of imagination over the course of history in particular talking about the space program and higher learning stuffs the failure of imagination is the big thing that caused things like 9-11 i.e. while there were many things that happened and failed that were pieces of 9-11 one of the largest pieces was at least back then America's inability to say look there are there are 20 dudes that are willing to get into a, a plane, into a giant jet aircraft filled with fuel, filled with people, and fly it into buildings filled with people. That, that was not an equation back then. And w- while it was an equation in, say, Pearl Harbor with the Japanese and the, the, the concept of kamikaze pilots, yes, that was absolutely there. But what, what took something like 9-11 for us to realize was there's so little that you can do when somebody goes, you know what, I'm willing to die for my cause. Worse yet, when you, when they say, I have to die for my cause. And how helpless you should feel when you hear something like that. Because knowing someone else can just throw their life away and they don't care because it's mission. That's not a good day for just about anybody inside of any law enforcement. Because that's what you can... You, you can hope that the, the sense of wanting to to save and preserve oneself is going to somehow allow you to intervene as law enforcement. Well, that's at the window here. And that's why I think it was an incredibly effective villain that is showcased here, ready to jack herself in 
and blow everybody up, including herself and everybody else that's going to further the mission. I loved all that. Mays having a meltdown. <laughs> I, as much as I don't ever want to say the words Mays having a panic attack, Mays having a panic attack, Nick. Yep. And I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about this because she's all cold and steely gazed and then all of a sudden panic attack. Are, are we are we trying to insert a PTSD storyline from, you know, having died? Okay, if, if we're going to do that, but it needs to be more than just a panic attack. Yeah. One of the few things I got from this is that it's kind of a parallel bridge story that you can take and latch on to Yo-Yo's story where she too is experiencing the, the hiccuping of what is a, a, a regular day for her. And now they both have to deal with this not having their power. In Yo-Yo's case, she can't zoom to and fro quickly. In May's case, she's unable to to push the kick-ass button, for lack of a better term. And so I'm wondering what's going to develop there. I, I, I like that. I just know that I would have liked to have seen something like this at a completely different time when literally everything is on the line. It could not possibly get more dire inside of this episode than right frickin' now. The DOD guy is on the loose. <laughs> This is another thread that takes us in a completely different direction than what I thought. I thought for sure he's going to go put on his his Tom Cruise hero-esque dun, 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 to spoil the alien commie's day. And nothing like that happens. <laughs> this is tremendous. He goes and he has kind of a... I, I don't even know what to call it. He goes and has like a like a Steve Rogers in Times Square moment inside of the bridge of the, of the Zephlorian. And it is tremendous. I absolutely love this. Well, it definitely puts a stop to all of his bolster and his, his blowharding. They outright shoot the dame. <laughs> this is great. Uh, for those that are curious inside of a military installation, regardless of what you look like, regardless of, how many lollipops you're carrying, regardless of whether you're a child, a woman, a woman dressed in a, a white doctor's coat with glasses and beautiful blonde locks. It doesn't make any difference. If you're inside of an area you're not supposed to be, you will be shot. And if you're curious as to what that looks like, well, it looks just like this. <laughs> and this is tremendous. This is when I know that they're pulling out the stops for the storytelling. And I love this. I love this scene. Not so much of women being shot, so please spare me the hate mail. But just that it can't get any more dire. You are not supposed to be here. Stop. You don't stop. I'm going to shoot you. Done. I was actually a little disappointed with the guards at the, at the gate leading up to Project MacGuffin. Because they kept on saying stop, stop, and they had guns, but they never shot at the jeep. And I'm yeah. like, well, this dead right there. You're on KT duty for the rest of your career, guys. Cause <laughs> you, that, that's not how you're supposed to do it. So when she pulls up and gets out and they say, ma'am, stop, you have to stop. 
and one of them actually shoots her. I'm like, well, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I, again, tremendous. And uh, again, dedication to the craft of storytelling that is real. And I, I totally appreciated that here because again, guys, it doesn't get any more dire than, Hey, look, it's the giant Guga that will destroy this entire area. <laughs> yeah. Shoot them. Talking tech. Nick and I love to talk tech when it comes to agents of shield inside this episode. There is one sole item that absolutely drew my attention. The junction port on the Dame. <laughs> and this is tremendous. This is easily one of the best parts of the episode. <laughs> a lady gets underneath the giant mega Yuga and uh, yanks out a, a, a essentially a power adapter, whatever, and <laughs> leans over and underneath her shirt pops this port. <laughs> this is tremendous. This whole thing was tremendous. The the Guga, the mega Guga itself. The special effects surrounding the Guga, the the fight inside the Guga, uh, the whole thing. But this tiny little port that junctions directly into the the top end of her chest. It was just wonderfully done. I'm just curious to find out how many times you're actually going to say Guga in this episode. Look, I can talk about female Chronicom ports all day long, but I'm curious what you guys saw inside of this episode that instantly makes you want to be talking tech. Let us know what you think by going over to our website. That's agentsofshield.tv. Fill out the quick web form and tell us what will get you talking tech inside this episode. A second Chronicom. <laughs> Excellent. So not only is the, the, the Dame Chronicom inside of this, the major threat that we eventually are able to take out of the equation. But, oh, lo and behold, there is a second Chronicom. Who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thunk it, Nick? Well, in the previous mission, they had three. So one would think that there would have been another one creeping around somewhere. Yeah, you know, the, the bottom line about Chronicoms is they don't have any obligation to show themselves. At, at some point, if the plan doesn't work, well, they just kind of sit around and wait for more time to pass. Who cares? <laughs> An EMP and self-destruction. This is tremendous also. The self-destruction moment inside of this was also, I, I think, another masterstroke in regard to making sure that a Chronicom isn't just going to be found, i.e. original Terminator storytelling, which it's funny, uh, Agent Kip and I were just talking about this. He, he was able to endure the entire line of Terminator feature films. And one of the things that we eventually got down to as the breaking down piece of what happened is that after the second Terminator film, they don't actually get back to any of the original content. Like, can't, can't they just find, like, an, uh, another leg or something from the original Terminator that allows them to expand and find something? Well, this is the fix. The fix is that when they are kaput, they just self-destruct and there's nothing left, literally, except the original ID badge that they were utilizing to be fake. Well, yeah, but you also don't want to leave alien futuristic tech in the hands of your quote-unquote enemy. So that is to self-destruct and melt. 
Yeah, I love which that. I think it's a great it's a great defense mechanism. It's a, it's a smart play for a a race of alien beings that are completely synthetic. Yeah, the the other the other component there is that I again I love the special effects that are used. I love that they 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 bother to spend the time on it, and it's not just a the cameras looking at the actors. There's a flash of light, and then they pan back, and there's this blob of alien goo slash ashes. I, I love that they took the time with it. It all paid off wonderfully. No one checks a pulse on L.M. Coulson or secures him. This was very interesting, especially, uh, I guess, someone like Sousa. Uh, I expected there to be something more invasive in regard to securing someone that is not only loose, but I, I guess he thinks he's dead because his eyes are wide open. Well, no. The uh, soldiers that run in, you know, we need a medic for these two. And then, of course, we get another shot of the melted Chronicom. Mm. And Sousa makes the joke of, well, I guess it really doesn't matter for this one. They run off, and Sousa walks over and turns L.M. Coulson over onto his back. And that's when we see that he's got his eyes open. And we just do that slow zoom into the eye. Yeah. So there's, there's not enough time for the whole, oh, this guy's eyes are wide open. He doesn't need a medic. Maybe he needs a hearse. Because all we're doing is he rolls over and then we slow zoom on the eye, the, the flickering of the electricity before we cut to black for our last commercial break. The Zinger and an episode title. This was fun. I really appreciated that we actually get the episode title delivered at the end, ass end of the episode. I thought that that was fun. Uh, I love this whole thing of the pseudo Randy Quaid character from Independence Day that this once proud, stout, rah-rah America, USA, we shall triumph guy has now (laughs) metamorphosized into this, I've seen the aliens guy that runs into the front end of the diner. And the, uh, the only thing better than him screaming the title in, inside the episode is the look on the waitress's face during all of it. It's, it's just gold. Uh, well, you mentioned it earlier, the, uh, the concept of ripples, not waves. And I, I guess they, they felt that making this guy think that he was visited by aliens was a safer bet than <laughs> not. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know where the thinking was there. Yeah. The only thing I can think is like uh, L.M. Coulson alludes to it. I think that's how I was able to pack it away and not be bitching about it. But he he during the somewhere inside of here, somebody mentions, oh, uh, the visiting visitation of aliens. And I I think it's L.M. Coulson. He goes, oh, yeah, it happened all the time back then. And and so (laughs) I it works. It might even work where this guy becomes in the future like the uh, the Dr. Oaken. From, from Independence Day, so who who knows where they're going to take it? I think that they would be they would be very very sly to be able to utilize this character again inside of perhaps another future jump. Uh, but you know who knows? It's time to take a break here during the Agents of Shield podcast, our complete, detailed, and always educational focus on every episode of Marvel's Agents of Shield on ABC and Hulu streaming. This time, it's Season 7, the final season, Episode 3, Alien Commies from the Future. 
We will be right back. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The one question every podcaster needs to ask themselves is why am I still editing my own podcast? We all know that editing your own podcast is the worst part of the podcast experience. Get the editing off your plate and reclaim more time to make more content with the Editor Core. Affordable, talented, experienced podcast editors are ready to take your podcast literally to the next level to make it soar. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at VoiceFarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, VoiceFarmers.com. That's VoiceFarmers.com. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can, with perpetual advertising. Here's how it works. Magazine, radio, and television ads are efforts that people might see or hear once, and then they're lost forever. Perpetual advertising provides you with the chance for repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, even years after it's originally inserted inside a podcast. So even after your advertising is included in a podcast years ago, those efforts are still impactful, providing you with true return on investment. Real impact, thanks to perpetual advertising. Are you ready to change the way you and your company or organization advertises? Find out more and launch a unique perpetual advertising effort right now by visiting twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Everyone, welcome back to the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast, a complete, detailed, and always educational review of each and every episode of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on ABC and Hulu streaming. This time we're focusing on Season 7, our final season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Episode 3, Alien Commies from the Future. Every time we come back from break, Nick and I open up our S.H.I.E.L.D. dossiers. The S.H.I.E.L.D. dossiers are where Nick and I expose either an actor's portrayal, a storytelling element featured inside the episode, or something else that trips our collective review night fantastic. Nick, what have you got? Well, my S.H.I.E.L.D. dossier is something uh, very simple, but very appreciated in this episode. The Signs of the Times. And this is something that we actually made, uh, I believe it was a talking point in the first episode of the season, how... They, they took the time to address the social norms of both women and African-Americans in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And they dealt with it. They dealt with it tastefully. And it didn't become a hindrance to the episode. They do that, again, expertly in this episode as well. I'm very appreciative of stuff like that because when I'm watching a hard-hitting drama that is supposed to be based in the 1950s, then I yes, I, if, if it's from HBO or Showtime or something like that, then I expect it to be in your face. Yeah. The racism was in your face. The prejudice was in your face. 
on my Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. show when they're hopping through time and, and trying to save the world and all of reality, I don't need it in my face. And they, they do a wonderful job of reminding you, hey, yeah, this was a problem back then. And guess what? Still a problem today, folks, without beating you over the head and taking you out of your fun comic book-based pop culture, popcorn-eating entertainment show. And that is my S.H.I.E.L.D. dossier. That's expertly said. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that it would be like watching Driving Miss Daisy and having nothing in the way of racism portrayed. It, right, it, that would it, be that would be a ridiculous movie. Right. It, it the, the, the well, I think what we're both looking at and talking about here Nick is the show is being completely genuine with the time that they're floating through, the tendencies of the culture back then and being able to have the glancing blows of that culture that assist the storytelling but do not at any time instantly whack you over the head like you're not paying attention i love that yeah it's so adeptly done very very well said inside this episode i think my shield dossier has got to feature Haley atwell oh damn it she's not in this episode nick well never mind inside this episode has (laughs) you fail at shield dossier (laughs) my shield dossier has got to feature a pseudo UFO man. The, 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 the scene where they, where they take sharp out into the, the desert tundra and they showcase that an, a, an alien ship has abducted him. And that if they, if we need to come back, you will be probed <laughs> and, and Max, Max having a problem with saying that and <laughs> just the, the repartee that's there. And then as you get outside the ship and you see the, the Zephlorian and dude, back then, if somebody would have seen something like that, what do you think they would have seen? And the answer is they would have seen a freaking alien spaceship and yeah. it's, it's all wonderfully portrayed. Again, it leans into heavily, super hard into that genuine nature of what people were thinking back then, but more importantly, showcasing where the next scene that we have is literally the guy stumbling into the, into the uh the the morning breakfast eateries of the of the desert diner espousing that he's seen and been abducted by aliens i i loved all of that and i thought it was tremendous inside this episode that's where we ask you guys what was inside your shield dossiers might it have been Haley Atwell. if not that's okay but let us know what you think was inside your S.H.I.E.L.D. dossier by going over to our website at agentsofshield.tv. Fill out the quick web form and tell us what's inside your S.H.I.E.L.D. dossier. Ah, the rating for this episode of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Season 7, the final season. Episode 3, Alien Commies from the Future. The scale works thusly. 10 is on top of the heap. A wonderfully crafted interrogation scene, complete with knee-high grape-flavored truth serum. A one is on the bottom of the scale, the probing that Mac is referring to. Everything starts at a seven as an average, the numbers go up with positives, the numbers go down with negatives, and Nick? There are no Habsies. Nick, what do you got? 
for me, this episode, even though it uh, it had great pace and clipped by fairly well, it felt, I don't want to say it felt disjointed, but it felt like there was a lot going on and not enough time to concentrate on everything that was happening. And I feel like maybe had we taken a few things out, we could have focused a little bit more on other more important things. Uh, case in point, we're inside of Area 51, we're inside the base, we're seeing all the cool, you know, classic S.H.I.E.L.D. stuff. And then a lot of that get, gets interrupted with trying to get information out of General Sharp, who you don't get any information except for the very end when he says that, you know, Project MacGuffin doesn't work. Well, couldn't they have found out that the project didn't work while they were in the actual facility that was working on the project? It, it seemed off, a little off for me. I would have rather paid more attention to what was going on in the base with Ellen Colson and pretending to be Agent Carter Simmons, along with Sousa, than going back to the Zephalorian every now and then to get a little bit more face time with General Asshole. Uh, so for me, even though I, I thoroughly enjoyed this episode and it, and it was a great episode, it, it, it delivered on what it was trying to do. For me, this episode was an eight. Yeah, just above average, I think, is a, a great landing platform for this episode. I think what we also have to remember, at least I know I'm going to remember throughout this entire season, is that spots have to be left for perfection. And in fact, I, too, am going to give this episode an eight. It's not because it sucks. It's not because it's only average. It's because I still have a feeling that regardless of, even though we had so much wonderful inside this episode, and again, my my mouth is smiling once again because I'm thinking of Haley Atwell. No, I'm kidding. I'm thinking of the Agent Sousa slash Agent Haley Atwell. I, I mean, Agent Carter moment inside this episode. And it's tremendous. It's fantastic. But folks... There's got to be more meat on the bone later on this season, and so I can't give it a higher record. <laughs> oh, how terrible. Nick, it's just such a terrible, grueling experience to watch this great television. Anyway, an eight for this episode for me, and that's where we ask you guys, what was your rating inside this episode? Season seven, episode three, Alien Commies from the Future. Let us know what you think by going to our website again. That's agentsofshield.tv. Fill out the quick web form. Tell us what you rated this episode. Until next time, I'm Mike Wilkerson, one of your hosts. And I'm Nicholas J. Hearn, your other host, reporting from the past, or is it the future? Nah, it's just a crappy alien walkie-talkie. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. We're thankful you were able to review this covert communication reviewing the most recent episode of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., a chronicle of the stories and soon-to-be legends on ABC. Be sure to tune in to our ongoing top-secret communication with agents all over the globe via our Facebook presence immediately, facebook.com forward slash S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast, to be the first to be made aware of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. news, the arrival of our newest reviews, and more. The Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast, a super show for fans of superheroes, Uncover the mysteries, critical information, and reviews now by accessing agentsofshield.tv. 
sound and we'll make sure the sound check is good all right agents of shield space alien roswell area 51 oh <laughs> gotcha okay so nick is sedate that's good 